Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the Lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? When you think about changing the world, what do you think about? When you think about changing your community, what do you think about? When you think about changing your family, what do you think about? When you think about changing your life, what do you think about? My guess is, at least on that last question, you tend to start thinking about your habits, your practices. How often do I exercise? How often do I pray? How often do I read my Bible? How often am I going on dates with my loved ones? How often am I getting time for deep and intimate friendship? Our minds, at least often in our personal lives, go frequently to our habits because I think on some fundamental level, we all understand that we become our habits. The person that I am, in 10 years will be shaped not based on large decisions that I make, but on all the tiny decisions I make throughout my day. But what if those tiny decisions don't just change you? What if they could change your marriage? And what if tiny habits inside your family could change your family? And what if tiny habits in your day-to-day life had the power to change where you work, where you live, the community that you're a part of? What if habits are absolutely fundamental to the question of how do we change the world? That's exactly the question I wanted to ask to just Whitmell Early. He has written a great deal about spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines. He is the author of The Common Rule and Habits of the Household, both books that explore spiritual disciplines from different angles. And he is more recently the author of Made for People, a fantastic book about loneliness and the discipline of friendship, how we're called to love our neighbors. So I'm excited for you to hear this conversation. Justin's fantastic. And I think if you listen to what he's saying and how he's pointing you to Jesus, it could change your life. Justin, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Patrick. Honored to be here. So several years ago, we had John Mark Comer on the show, and he shared about a conversation he had with Dallas Willard, who, if you're listening, you don't know who that is. He's a philosopher. He's written countless books on spiritual disciplines. And Dallas told him, and this was the quote, there's no problem for which discipleship is not the solution. And he was thinking about daily habits, prayer, Bible study, silence and solitude, fasting, sacrifice, service, and a lot more besides. And I think that this strikes most people as maybe being a bit naive. Do habits and discipleships, did they do anything to overturn the Jim Crow South? So I want to start there and just ask you, how does that quote strike you? Would you agree with the statement, there's no problem for which discipleship and, you know, healthy spiritual practices is not the solution? I probably don't want to take the risk of disagreeing with Dallas Willard. (laughs) So I'll, I'll lean towards yes, though I might nuance the quote actually to say there's no problem for which discipleship is not the beginning of the answer, at least. You know, a big part of my story is that I used to be a missionary in China. 
this is my first job outside of college. I had the idea of changing the world in the tip of my tongue, at the front of my head and heart. And I thought a lot about this. How do people change and how do cultures change? Because it was a big deal for us in China, thinking about what were we doing and how are we changing people. And then I had this experience on the streets of China where a protester, a drug dealer, a black market thief and uh, prostitutes all in the same five minutes on the street of China. And it was the political protester who was immediately arrested. And I had this big epiphany moment where I realized that there were structures that we live under that change the way we're incentivized to act and the way that we think. And I'm summarizing a calling moment here, but I decided after that point that I wanted to continue to live missionally, but in the sphere of law and business, because I realized this matters. It shapes the human heart. So I came back to the States and I'm all energized about how to change the world, to change structures. And I go to law school and I did great. Graduate towards the top of my class. I got a dream job in mergers and acquisitions. Everything's going well according to my calling. And I get to my first year of lawyering and I totally fall apart. So completely fall apart into anxiety attacks, insomnia, panic. I had no idea what was going on. This had never happened to me before. But I looked around and I realized this is happening everywhere in the legal profession. And in fact, this is happening everywhere in modern America. And the reason I answered the question this way, Patrick, was because I realized I was somebody who then and still now had lofty ambitions of how do we help people? How do we change systems? How do we change culture? But I was the missionary that got converted to the nervous medicating lawyer. So law school and systems changed me too. And one of the things that I've realized ever since is that you cannot work on the world. You cannot be of service to the world without it trying to shake you back. And so whatever you're trying to work on, it's trying to work on you too, which is why I think John Mark Comer is right on in his answer. You're thinking primarily, first and foremost, in terms of discipleship. So I'm going to go with my answer that it begins there, but it doesn't end there. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a good answer. I want to shift and think about parents for a moment, because I think the same problem faces parents specifically as well. As I talk to friends with young kids, teenagers, school-age children, it often strikes me that they're more concerned about LGBTQ issues, for example, being taught in their public schools than they are about their family's spiritual habits, at least if you paid attention to how much time they spend (laughs) on each one. And again, they'd say to you, hey, you know, it's nice to talk about practices in family or practices in my personal life, but how in the world can I compete when the teacher that they see every day in class is contending with what I'm trying to do at home? So what would you say to them? I'm very sympathetic to the wild, extreme, and strange fears that come up in a parent's (laughs) mind. So as a father of four boys, age five to 11 right now. I'm asking for a friend, obviously. This isn't me. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. <laughs> Whether it's a cultural hot button issue that gets overplayed and you named one, it's significant, it's important, but of course it's also overplayed. Or it's one of those wild fears of like, if I decide they're going to get hit by a car, I know it, or they're going to get abducted. And these things are actually extraordinarily rare in the suburbs you happen to live in, whatever. I just give a lot of sympathy to the fear that occupies a parent's mind. But I would gently speak into that error and say, what I just said stands 100% true in parenting. We become our habits and our children become us. And our most important concern for our child's spiritual formation should be who am I in the household? 
And who am I becoming? Am I becoming a disciple of Jesus? This is where Dallas Willard's quote would once again be right on par. The first question on a parent's mind should be discipleship to Jesus because you are not there to protect them from the world. You can't. I mean, it's like a complete and utter wish dream that we could do that. Our job is to introduce them to encounters with Jesus so that they can face the world and make hard decisions and suffer under and overcome hard things in the name of Jesus. So I understand that parents' concerns and public education is a significant issue in its own right to talk about, but it doesn't come close to the importance of discipleship in the Christian home and saying, are you a mom or dad that's walking with Jesus? Because your kid is becoming like you. Yeah. You brought up fear. And I think I agree. I think so much of my own parenting and of the parenting of my friends is often driven by fear. And maybe it's fear driven by some hot button, hot topic issue. Maybe it's more prosaic fears. Like I don't want my child to be hit by a car or kidnapped. And I'm not saying that kidnappings are prosaic. I'm saying they're incredibly uncommon. But I do think that fear drives a lot of our parenting, which makes me ask the question, I mean, how does fear malfunction? form our parenting? How does it lead us astray or make us into the wrong kinds of parents? Wow, that's such a good question, Patrick. I think fear malforms us because it makes us the savior. When we're focusing on our fears, we're usually focusing on the ways that we can solve them or the ways that we can control life so that fear for our child will go away. And then functionally, we're the savior. We're no longer pointing to Jesus. We're pointing to I'm in charge of what you watch. I'm in charge of where you go. I need to supervise it all the time. We can't do this because what if this? And it's honestly a miserable way to live for you and your children because fear, not love, is governing those decisions. Now, any parent who loves their children are going to protect them from certain obvious dangers, worldview dangers or physical dangers, relational and everything in between. But those decisions are driven out of love, not fear. And when it's out of love, you understand that risk, suffering, difficulty is not something that is in the world of possibility for you to stop. But rather, your job is to take this beautiful image bearer of God and shepherd and steward them into the life of a disciple, which, by the way, involves a lot of risk, suffering and hard things. So we don't protect them. We train them to follow Jesus through hard things. And I think that's a softer paradigm. That's like we got to bring our fears to Jesus paradigm instead of we have to control. So I think fear malforms us into controlling people and acting out of love forms us into discipling or shepherding people, which is what our children need. As I hear you speak, I'm just asking myself, is my house a school of fear Or is it a school of love, which is something you've talked about in your books, which is that the household is to be a school of love. And if I'm being honest, I don't think I measure up very well, but I want to ask the question because fear of the future drives so much of my own decision-making and my own parenting in ways that I don't think I'm even totally conscious of, which makes me ask, you know, an alternative question. I mean, is there a different way for parents to think about the future, to think about what's to come that allows them to make their household, instead of being a school of fear, into a school of love? Yes, (laughs) there is. But I don't think it's the way that you think or the way that at least I thought. And that is, I think I once heard Russell Moore say, you can't think your way out of a problem that you practiced your way into. You need to practice yourself out of that problem. And I think therein lies a really important distinction. So 
you know, it's one thing for me to look at parents and say, stop the fear, start the love. <laughs> it might be right. Thanks for the good <laughs> advice, man. Completely, yeah, it's probably completely useless as to how to do that tomorrow. And that is because none of us set out as parents or as followers of Jesus to say, you know, when I hit the age of 33, I hope to be a mess of anxiety who's worried about, you know, my young child and my job and the state of the world. Like, that's my goal. No, of course we didn't set out like that. None of us thought that. None of us thinks that. None of us wants to be here. But we have been discipled into people of fear, people of anxiety, people of depression by someone, by something. You know, we've actually followed a set of practices that has formed us and my writing or John Mark Comer or Dallas Willard or a lot of us, because we're looking at Jesus would say, discipleship is the answer that you have to practice your way out. So setting up family rhythms, family habits that say, we're going to intervene in this moment of discipline with a short prayer, or we're going to say these words of forgiveness or reconciliation, because we need to get out of our conflict and into repaired relationship or whatever it is. And I could talk, you know, my second book habits of the household is all about these small liturgies or habits of the home, but those are the ways to practice yourself back into love and out of fear. And that's not to say obviously that we're the final arbiters of our character. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's just opposed to earning. And that's Dallas Willard, by the way. <laughs> so setting up these practices is a way to say, I'm going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, the Savior, who is trying to sanctify me and make me into the character of his love. And those are things to do. And that is the way that you change yourself and you change your children. But it's not just thinking your way back to it. It's both thinking and practicing your way into it, which is another way of saying a fully formed life of discipleship to Jesus that requires your mind and your body and thus your soul. I remember telling a friend, and I'm pretty sure someone told me this as well, the time to find out whether or not you'll give in to the temptation to commit adultery is not in a hotel lobby with a woman that you don't know and with no one watching. That's a terrible time to figure it out. The time to figure it out is by developing practices and habits of mind and chastity and how you think about women over time. That's actually going to be the thing that determines in the moment whether or not you give in to that temptation. And I've started thinking about that in my parenting too. You know, the things that I fear my kids are going to do. They're going to do some of them, but the response from that moment is going to come from the practices that I think I've probably instilled in them in our house. And if it's a school of fear, they might not be well set up to respond well yes. in those particular moments. In your book, you discuss an exercise that helps parents to get a vision of the future and start to plan towards it in their habits. I don't know if you could share more about that. You said, I think yeah. you and your wife did this of projecting into the future what you guys want to be and what you want your children to be. Yeah. Talk about a fear-inducing exercise. So, you know, <laughs> hold on here for a second. Because some people have a great reaction to this. Some people have an oh no reaction to this. But oh no. <laughs> short version is I'm sitting in a coffee shop one day between emails. It was a work day. I was working remotely, working on my law practice. And I just sent a client on email. And for some reason, the question of like, how old will my oldest son be when I'm 50 popped into my mind? And I was like, how old will I be? And so I wrote out my ages alongside the years and then wrote out his ages. And then I was like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> I wrote out my next son's ages. And then I did all four of my sons and my wife and ended up in the middle of a coffee shop in the middle of a work day as a business lawyer, I ended up with this little chart 
that I still have a picture of and actually printed it in the book, Habits of the Household. I call it the age chart. And it's this incredible, just small journal page picture that anybody can do that suddenly calls your attention to the fact that you don't have forever with your children. And this is why I found particularly for more sentimental parents, this is very fear inducing. They're like, oh no, my baby's going to grow up. <laughs> now for a certain set of parents, you know, and I'm maybe closer to this side, it can be very encouraging. Like, oh, this is not forever. Like they're going to be gone out of the house finally at some point. And somewhere in between is probably the normal parent who says, oh my gosh, there is a lot to savor here because this is not forever. But it also helps me see that I'm going to be progressing through the not yet moments of, you know, we're not always going to be in diapers. We're not always going to be in naps. We're not always going to be around the house. We're not always going to be teenagers. And for me, Patrick, it helped me look at those moments and say, this is my gift to steward. It's not my burden. It's not my obligation. It's not my forever life task. Because when you're in the nitty gritty of parenting, it can feel like this is just your life, like your whole life is this you know, problem with naps right now? Or your whole life is this problem with diapers right now? But no, you have a gift of time to steward. And anybody who suddenly sees the time-bound nature of this precious gift of raising children, I think takes a little more seriously, how do I act in it then? And that comes back to just saying, it's somewhat of a motivation. The Proverbs say, without vision, the people perish, right? And I think if you miss your vision of saying, where is this whole thing going? then you're just stuck in the nitty-gritty day-to-day of parenting, which is making you know, menial, stressful decisions. And you wonder why. But when you realize this is not forever, and this is a gift to steward... And by the way, you're trying to shape brothers and sisters in Christ, not primarily sons and daughters, but people who are wondering, are your brothers and sisters in Christ? You get to raise them into that. I think it helped me at least say what can I do now to act towards that end? If that's the truth of what's happening in the household or the can, how would I set up some habits and practices to lean into that glorious vision and out of this just sort of stressful blinders on vision of what do I have to do today? So be brave. It takes some courage, but I would suggest to anybody to go make that H chart. <laughs> you can look it up in the book or actually have it, um, a, a template for it on habitsofthehousehold.com. But make that age chart and then think hard about your parenting. You'll probably cry a little bit and it'll be good for you. (laughs) You know, when I read it, I guess I'm one of the weirdos who found it incredibly helpful and hopeful. I like thinking about the future. And, you know, the funny thing is, I don't think about myself as a worrier, but I I realize that with my kids, when it comes to the future, most of the thoughts that I do are worry. Even the prayers I have for them are worry. You know, God, please protect them from this. God, please, you know, help them to be, you know, this. And it's because I'm scared of something happening that's out of my my control that's going to cause them pain, harm, and suffering. And of course, they're going to face those things. But when I read that, it gave me a sense of hope, not because, you know, I want to dictate the future lives of my children, but because, you know, I still remember what it was like to be a teenager. And I still remember what it was like to, you know, be in college in my early 20s. And what would I want to be true of my character? Well, what do I wish had been formed in my character that I would just love to form and see in them? And what do I need to do now to actually head in that direction? And in a sense, it actually freed me from the worry, not because it was a guarantee that the things I fear won't happen in the future, but because I feel confident that God in his grace and mercy can work through, you know, our diligence as parents. I would encourage anybody to do this. You and your books, you've written a decent amount about you and your father, your relationship with him and how his habits changed you as a young man. And I'm sure all the way up to today. So could you maybe share a bit about your father, his gubernatorial run and how his habits shaped him and formed him during that period? 
I would love to do that. That's such a special topic because I just have to say I'm standing on the shoulder of a mother and father who followed Jesus really well. And I got to grow up under that. They were not without mistakes, but by and large, I realized that a lot of people have much more difficult relationships with their parents. And by grace, I get to honor my mom and dad and say they did wonderful in so many things. And one of those things, Patrick, that you're referring to is it was just normal for me as a child to see my dad reading his Bible in the morning when I walked upstairs. He would be in his study. He had the statement Bible that he would keep on his desk. And when I had my fall apart moment that I referred to in my early career of lawyering, one of the habits that was a lifeline for me, unsurprisingly, was a habit of scripture before phone, which was just saying, I'm not going to go to my office emails or Twitter or the news or something else and get worried and anxious about all that I have to do today as if I have to justify my existence in the world today and I have to make it a peaceful day by what I do, but rather to look to the scriptures to realize that God is reigning over the universe and I can go act out of love instead of go to earn my love. And it sounds like such a simple practice because it is, but it is an incredible theological shift. You know, I talked earlier about practicing your way out of a problem that you practiced your way into. While I was writing about this in the common rule, I had my dad's statement Bible that I just mentioned on my desk. So I just like opened it up and I opened it up on Corinthians, if I recall right. And in it was chapter one he had read in 2002, like January 1, chapter 2 was January 2. And I suddenly remembered that was the time my dad had just lost the gubernatorial race. So I grew up with the son of a politician. He was a state senator in Virginia, and then he ran for attorney general and he was successful. And then he ran for governor my senior year of high school. And so I was so excited about living in the governor's mansion, getting a bodyguard and all this stuff, but he lost. <laughs> And that was the first and only political race he ever lost. And I was, I was devastated. You know, I was like crying myself to sleep as a man child of like 16 as a senior. <laughs> and uh, when I woke up the next morning, Patrick, and he was upstairs making pancakes, whistling. And we sat down. He mercifully let us have the day off school. So we sat down and had a family breakfast. And he started talking about what he had read in the Bible that morning and how excited he was about what God had next for him, which by the way, he didn't know, like he was out of a job, right? It's gone. <laughs> Doesn't know, you know, what he's going to do. And all those memories came flooding back to me as I looked at that Bible on my desk that morning. And this is the thing, right? You as a parent, it's so thankless in some ways because so much of the fruit is for later, right? The ways that I behaved in high school during that time were awful. It was so bad. I was in such a deep state of rebellion. I was the prodigal son. I had all the things I'm sure you and I, and I know my parents wanted to protect me from, I was like, I'm going to go try all these things, you know? And it was a decade or more later that I just thought back to that vision of my dad in his habit, becoming a stable disciple of Jesus amidst the unstable ups and downs of politics. And it struck me a decade and a half later that this practice was not neutral. It changed him and it could change me too. And it was just one of the ways where I saw his identity track discipleship to Jesus instead of the vote of the electorate. And I would just encourage parents to say, this is the kind of thing we're after, being a disciple of Jesus on display to our children. So at some point, it might be very far in the future 
they'd say, oh, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Because again, we become our habits and our children become us. And I've seen that firsthand. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together, that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. I love that line from your book that you just said, we become our habits and our children become us. I love it and I hate it because it's a terrifying statement because I know myself, I know the darkness, but I think it's also terrifying. And I'm just going to get a little bit of personal counseling from you since I have you on the line. I've got two young kids and I know I'm not alone in what I'm saying. So I'm just going to put it out for public consumption. Most nights, if I'm going to be honest, they're the same. It's the bath time battle, the battle to put on PJs, the battle to get everybody to go to sleep. And even using that language of battle, I mean, it describes my own orientation, right? Like all of a sudden I become, you know, a drill sergeant and I'm barking orders at kids. I got to get the platoon on track. And then, and then come the inevitable bedtime breakouts, you know, everybody's asleep apparently. And then you hear that creaky door start opening and the little foot patter come yes, out. Yeah, and yeah. apparently whenever this happens, every time it happens, I make this really exasperated face. And apparently this is so common. I didn't know I was doing this, that just the other night, just maybe two nights ago, when my daughter opened up her door, my wife whipped out her camera and took a picture of me to capture my face. And she thought this was hilarious. I mean, she could not stop laughing for about 20 minutes later. And admittedly, it was pretty funny, but but afterwards, I started feeling really convicted because, one, I had no idea I'd become so predictable. But number two, and perhaps more importantly, I realized that I had somehow habituated myself to irritability. That was just my gut level response. So predictable. You can pull out a phone and <laughs> catch me in the moment and know that it's going to happen. So help me out, Justin. How do I turn my family into your idyllic, perfect family? Oh, I'm sorry. I can't answer that because we don't have one, but, <laughs> but I will say. I'm joking. I'm joking, of course. But I really do mean the question, though, because I agree with you. Our kids become us and we become our habits. And that's kind of terrifying when I think about the drill sergeant every night. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, let me comment on it, even though I don't have a solution. First of all, I love the phrase you used, habituated to irritability. That's a delightful way of stating it. Because I think, Patrick, the importance of those moments, and I had anybody who reads the first chapter of Habits in the Household will read about the nightmare of our bedtimes with the four boys. And for me, it was the realization of 
what is my normal? It was bedtime that got me to realize, oh my gosh, my normal is this liturgy of frustration and anger at them. And this was like, I was the person who just written a book on the common rule, like spiritual practices and everyday life technology and work and how habits are liturgies. And I realized, oh, I can be a person who has all these spiritual liturgies at work and still yell at my kids every night. And that is an important point of grace to realize we need help. That our default, and usually you see this at the end of the day, right? It's that you're tired, they're tired, and no one's on their best behavior. And that was the place for me where I first started saying, okay, what sort of habit could I put in here to intervene and to help me? And it was the bedtime liturgy that people who read the book will see that I got a lot of like ideas for prayers to do with your kids at bedtime. But the whole point, you know, I said it in jest earlier, I can't help you with that because I don't have a calm, angerless evening. And I don't. But here's the point. The habit of bedtime liturgies for me have been a way not to change the circumstances because if you have kids, you have chaos. Period. You know, if you have kids, you have tantra tantrums. If you have parents, then you have angry parents. Like it's not necessarily to change the circumstances, it's to change our reaction to those circumstances, to change our knee jerk takes on those circumstances and steward us back into reconciliation, forgiveness. And that actually has worked. So it's not that we have at all some organized, well behaved family, but we do have a family that apologizes a lot. And they do have a dad now whose knee-jerk reaction to their bedtime antics has substantially changed because of habits that we've put in place. And I think that's the sign of grace. Again, not earning. It's this idea of, you know, I want to put some effort into becoming like Jesus in my bedtime routine. And habits of the household like that really can change your reaction to your children and open up new pathways of God's shaping your hearts and your children's hearts through healthy habits. In your books, you are incredibly practical, and I would encourage people to pick any of them up to draw some of your ideas. But I know that some people hearing this will be discouraged because, you know, there's always things that we'd like to do that we don't do. There's always habits we've wanted to form, but we never formed. Habits we wanted to get rid of, but we've never gotten rid of. And so what do you say to discouraged people? Whether or not they're parents, right? Just discourage people who think, you know, I don't even want to think about this right now because, you know, this time, how will it be any different? I'll give you a deep encouragement and then some practical encouragement. The deep encouragement is that the yoke of Jesus is easy and his burden is light. Now, I'm not saying that any of this habit stuff is simple or easy to do. Like anything hard is worth doing. But the fact is that when you take on these kind of habits or you start to tackle these sorts of things in your home, you're saying, yes, I'm coming under a yoke, but it's the easy yoke of Jesus. It's the light burden. And what I would point out now is that we are all by default being discipled by our contemporary American culture in all sorts of intangible ways. And we are carrying a very, very heavy yoke of distraction, a very, very heavy burden of constant technology use, a very, very heavy yoke of discipleship to greed and consumerism and injustice and blindness and all these things and busyness. I mean, a heavy yoke of busyness of just, we have to do, do, do. And so, yes, does this require work? Absolutely. Your sanctification requires work, but you're headed towards the light burden of Jesus. And that is a gift. He's a gentle and lowly 
master. He's not a demanding master. And so I'm not going to lie and say there aren't things to do, but I'm saying that your slavery to an unknown master who does not love you to being servant of a good master who does love you named Jesus. And so moving in that direction, I can guarantee is not going to be exhausting to you. This is not a list of things you have to do. This is a welcomed open arms of a savior who wants to change you, who doesn't want you to stay in this exhausted state. And then two, just practically, you know, what does that look like? The big goalpost is I need my life to be simple and the schedule to not be busy and everything to be easy. And like, no, it's not going to happen. Like you, you'll never get there, but here today, small goalpost, could you pray with your child or here today? Could you say no to one appointment because you don't have to do everything like you can just do a little bit less or can you start your day to day in scripture rather than your phone and moving the goalposts to small little habits like that are actually ways of saying oh my gosh this is kind of light these are small things but they aggregate into a beautiful life and that is the goal of discipleship just being faithful in those small things and so that's one small move towards the light burden and anybody can do that. I'm thinking about in my own life before we had kids, I used to love to exercise, ran a lot, too much. I got shin splints, but I loved it and I enjoyed it. And then we had children and all of a sudden exercise started going to the wayside and the weight side of things wasn't doing so good. And I recently have finally gotten healthy. I've gotten back into exercising and it was really hard. You know, it was exhausting. My body didn't feel good. I didn't want to do it. But the upside was I did know that there was a goal at the end. I did know that a day was going to come when I could, you know, get on the bike and not be just totally disgustingly exhausted and sick to my stomach. That a day was going to come where it was going to be delightful. And the rest of my life as a result was actually going to be more enjoyable, less full of physical suffering. And I think because we have been, again, so habituated to a culture where these kinds of practices are abnormal. Most of us don't even know what that looks like. We don't even have a vision of what it could be, right? Most of us know what it's like to be healthy and fit at least at one point in our life, but we don't know what's it like to be in a family or have a life where I'm spiritually fit. So, I mean, look, I'm not trying to hold you up as some sort of idol. You're going to be the first person to say, no, our family's not perfect, but can you just help us get a vision? What's it like to start instituting these practices into our family? What can we look forward to when it comes to enjoying a life full of maybe less exhaustion? Yeah, I would be careful about holding myself out as saying, you know, imitate me. But to the extent you can follow me as I follow Christ, it's important to know I write and talk about this from a messy household, right? If you were to come into my house tonight, you would see, you know, crumbs under the kitchen table and dishes in the sink, and you would hear my boys yell at each other and me snap at them. And you'd be like, okay, wait, this is normal. But I hope that would be encouraging to everybody to realize that humans being in the same household is always the cause of controversy because we are sinners, right? Like we are sinners. We will rub up against each other. We will be impatient as children and parents, but, but you will also see us pray together at dinner and then in the evening before bed and then in the morning before we leave to school. And also maybe after a moment of discipline, you will also see us exchange questions during dinner about talking about how was your day today? Tell me something like training small children to learn to open themselves up and share about days. You'll see us doing the dishes together because they have to help clean up the table. You'll see us if it's a Wednesday night doing our family time devotion after the dinner table. 
And it's not like you'll be like, oh, wow, this is an amazing orderly household. No. I mean, you'll see all the mess alongside it. And you'll see the way my kids misbehave and cut up during family devotion. But, but what I hope anybody would see is that say, oh my gosh, amidst all this chaos, which I have too, spiritual formation is happening and reconciliation is happening. Yeah, like, of course, there's conflict and problems, but repair is happening and prayer is happening and spiritual formation is happening. And when I lay my head down on the pillow at night, you know, I don't think, oh my gosh, what a perfect day. I think, praise God that there was grace for us today. And that even in the messy, chaotic moments of the household, he was still making us who he's calling us to be. And it's actually in that place of messiness that is your spiritual formation. And you don't have to get away from that for God to work. And that's where I hope people will start rejoicing alongside me. They're like, oh my gosh, I thought I had to like, get to this goalpost to get out of the mess in order for the Lord to do something or in order to get to who I'm supposed to be. I'm like, no, welcome to the God who incarnates into the world of sinners and works on you in the mess. And that I think is for is a matter of rejoicing. It is great. And you, you know, people who see that would be like, oh my gosh, the household is the monastery. My messy, chaotic household, that's the place where Jesus is forming me into a disciple. So why not embrace this spiritual practice right in the midst of it? And that changes things. Now that I hope people have gotten a bit of a vision about how habits shape us as people, and of course, the shape that we take on shapes the people around us as well. I want to circle back to where we started talking about Christianity and culture. I mean, that's what this podcast is about anyways, and it's what people probably expect to hear. This is something I've been thinking a lot about, and you know, maybe you won't have any answers to my questions here, <laughs> but I think it's valuable to explore how practices intersect with our call to be faithful witnesses as exiles in Babylon. Are there ways in which our habits are a necessary ingredient for faithfulness in our local communities, wherever we're at. I mean, is it something that we have to have to be faithful? Yes, yes, yes. And here's particularly why. I think our modern moment is different than the decades that came before us. And here's why. We live at a time where words are not working. We have a very, very different definition of the word love and justice, God, forgiveness, gender, race, you name it. We have a priori, first principle level disagreements. And it is very, very hard to communicate with your typical American neighbor right now. It's not true everywhere in the world. And this is not true throughout American history. But right now, it is, which means that apologetics and arguments are not necessarily bad, but it is a particularly ineffective time for them. Okay. And one of my favorite cultural critics, Ken Myers said that the secularism or the atheism that we experience in America today is not necessarily so much a reasoned argument as it is a mood. And I think that is incredibly important. Your average American did not walk through the logical philosophical steps to reach the conclusions they have about race, about gender, about God, about justice, about what violence is, about what a person is. It is a sticky formational mood that they have also been discipled under, right? And But here's the point, Patrick. Anybody knows that you cannot disrupt a mood with an argument. You have to disrupt it with a presence. 
And when we live out lives that are distinctly present because we have different habits of technology, when we live out lives that are distinctly relational because we have different habits of schedules and busyness, when we live out lives that are distinctly loving in our family and inclusive of our neighbors because people are coming to our house for dinner, we live out literally a life of embodied presence of light in a dark culture. And this is what Madeline Engel once summarized so beautifully. She said, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, but by showing them a light so lovely that they long with all their hearts to know the source of it. This is a kind in American history where the iron dome of secularism that doesn't let any of the light of the heavens in can be cracked by presence, by habit, by a different life lived instead of just arguing in the dark. And so I would not just suggest, I would actually argue, ironically, that habits are essential, particularly communal habits of the church, lived communities. They are the greatest sermon we're ever going to preach in this modern moment of America, and they are the way forward for evangelism, at least right now. And maybe in a couple of decades, apologetics will come back as a great way to talk to our neighbors, and we should be prepared for that moment. But right now, we need different lives on display because the way we live in community is the greatest sermon that we're going to preach. I want to riff on the phrase we've discussed multiple times now. We've said, you know, our children become us and we become our habits. And I'm trying to thread a needle and figure out if this could make sense or some version of it. Maybe you can rewrite it for me. Our culture becomes us and we become our habits, which is not to say that Christians are able to entirely change cultures and that they're the totality of culture. But when I say culture, I'm much more locally minded and changing the communities that we live in. I think there's something there. I think there's good fodder there. I think, you know, saying that we become our habits is fairly indisputable. So I'm comfortable with that one. And saying (laughs) that our culture becomes us is a riff on the idea that our children become us. Now, obviously we disciple our children in a different tangible and lived way then we necessarily get to disciple our culture. So there's a distinction to be made there. But I think the gist underneath it that is true, which I would 100% support, is that change is far more a product of formation than it is education. And that's what we've missed a lot of. In the worldview movement of the late 80s through the 90s and early 2000s, a lot of which I really support, because we need to be thinking well. Taken to an extreme, it can assume that really what our problem is what we're thinking, okay? I've met a lot of people who think really clearly and live life very badly, you know? And I've been one of them, right, as a young lawyer. My theology was incredible. And I was falling apart in panic attacks. I was drinking in order to fall asleep. I, you know, I was, my life was falling apart. Formed in the common discipleship of modern America, which unsurprisingly produces mentally broken and emotionally impoverished people. And that idea that our culture is formed as much as it is educated is what we need. And honestly, Patrick, I would say in in many ways, it's what our, our culture misses too. I think a lot of the word that you hear, at least on the left side of culture, is like the problem is education. We need people to know what the truth is. We need to educate them about these problems. And That is just not true about how humans work. You can know about a problem all you want and you could care zero about it because you need to be formed in the image of somebody who actually loves and virtue formation, all that stuff. So it's a big statement 
because it's not so simple how we form our culture, right? But that our culture needs to be discipled and not just taught is indisputable. And that is the question. How do we disciple them? Not just how do we feed them information? That's a helpful connection to draw together. I'm thinking again, just a little more practically for, you know, everyday people who are working in civil service, they're working in education, they're working at a nonprofit, they own a business, they're an attorney like you. How can we shape and form ourselves so that we're able to work for the welfare of Babylon and business law, civil service, nonprofit, whatever it is. What are the practices that we need to start thinking about actively integrating so that we can, like you said earlier, change the vibe? Yeah, I would 100% endorse regular people like me, like working in my lawyering profession to embrace the ancient wisdom of a rule of life. So a rule of life was biblical. If we have more time, I'd explain how, but it really kind of got named in the early monasteries of a church fathers like Augustine, then Benedict, who had a set of practices, spiritual, physical work, all these things. They had a set of communal habits that was aimed at forming them into the love of God and neighbor. So aimed at forming them in the greatest law of love that Jesus lays out, how to love God and love neighbor. The monastics understood that that was a question of discipleship and formation and that they needed common habits to get there. Okay. What is incredible is, you know, whatever you think about the monastic system or, you know, the Catholic church that it came out of rule of life, that concept has been practiced throughout really millennia now. And by the way, the monastic system in terms of social work, basically invented hospital systems, basically cared for the poor for centuries. They were the ones who invented what became classical education. I mean, they shaped the world, maybe unparalleled to any other force. So anybody who's thinking, how do I change culture? How do I shape things? Well, the monastics started with a rule of life in order to care for the poor, a rule of life in order to create hospitals, a rule of life in order to welcome the weary world into the safe and beautiful halls of a community that loved God and loved neighbor. And what that looks like for your regular accountant or your regular you know, stay-at-home mom or lawyer like me, I think is a shaping set of rule of life practices that is like scripture before phone, or turning your phone off in the evening to have silence, of eating communal meals so that you're actually in a rhythm of community of Diving into close friendships, you know, on a regular basis, going to church is not complicated stuff. It's actually, when you break it down, very boring and very simple stuff. These simple, ordinary acts shape extraordinary lives and change culture in extraordinary ways when the church embraces it as a community. And this, you know, as you know, is what my first book, The Common Rule, is about. So the common rule is the idea of creating a rule of life for regular common people like you and me. But I think that is the modern answer that that we need to embrace that wisdom again to become disciples so that we can then disciple the world. You know, it's interesting when your most recent book came out about loneliness and love and I saw the title, I thought that's strange. You know, here's the guy who's talked about a rule of life and the habits of the household and all these practices that shape us. But the more I started thinking about it, the more I realized it makes perfect sense because if we've been called to love lonely people, the action of love doesn't come from nowhere. It has to come, like we've said earlier, from a school of love, from practices designed to shape a particular kind of person you can love in a particular kind of way. With our remaining time, I'd just love for you to give maybe the elevator pitch, the TLDR, the thesis statement of your most recent book and maybe any ways you see it connecting with the conversation that we're having right now? Well, in my first book, The Common Rule, one of the weekly habits was spending an hour in vulnerable, intentional conversation with a friend because I knew during my mental health crisis that 
intimate, vulnerable relationships will save your life. And then in the habits of the household, there's a chapter about conversation, about talking to your kids and training them to be people who eventually become your friends and actually putting conversation with friends on display to help them become people who can actually love neighbor because they know how to talk. Right. And so there's this undercurrent in my writing of you cannot do any of the spiritual work of discipleship that we're trying to do alone. It requires community. And in my life, two things were happening. One, I was looking out at the increasing volume of the loneliness statistic conversation and saying, this is very interesting, scary, and a good point. America is now a case study in proving Genesis, which is to say that by living increasingly isolated and individualistic lives, we have started to decrease our lifespan. We've just started to die younger and really nasty deaths called deaths of despair that are suicides, opioid overdoses, alcohol and drug-related stuff. The problems that come from living a lonely life, which doesn't mean a recluse in an apartment necessary. It just means somebody who is not known by the outside world. Somebody who has a perceived shut off. You're lonely in a crowd as most of us are. And second, at the same time as I'm reading these statistics, I'm seeing in my life that the difference between people who are falling off the wagon, so to speak, either of faith or of mental health or something else, some addiction, the difference between those people and the people who were struggling but nonetheless persevering was almost unanimously, do these people have close friendships in their life? Are they walking alone through their struggles? Or are they walking with somebody else? And Patrick, it started to become such an important personal issue. I was like, this merits its own book. It is the public health crisis of our moment. It is also the spiritual health crisis of our moment. Because when you look at the Bible, it's one long story of God made us for people. Adam is lonely in the garden until God gives him Eve. We're made to experience God alongside others. We can't walk as a disciple of Jesus alone. We have to do it amongst friends. And Jesus' paradigm of discipleship that he gives us in John 15 is, I've called you friends. So the Bible in some ways is a story of friendship and I am made for people. My hope is to give this word friendship back to the church because it's not new. We've just lost it in our modern moment. And to say friendship is one of the most important spiritual disciplines you'll practice. You must be doing all the stuff that we talked about, parenting, habits, spiritual disciplines. Walking alongside a friend in those is the way to the good life because that's how God made you. He made you for people. And it does feel like it intersects with, you know, the broader question that we often discuss here of how we are loving and caring for and changing whatever Babylon we happen to live in, because you cannot change a world that not only you don't know, but that you aren't a friend of, (laughs) that you aren't in relationship with. And we have to learn how to be in relationship. We have to learn how to develop the practice of friendship. And I've seen this so many times that people who are, you know, incredibly, at least on the surface, seem incredibly right-brained, you know, they're analytical they're logical, they're reasonable. And the reality is we actually lead with the left and move and justify with the right. But many people see themselves that way. And the thing that has brought them to know Jesus has not been the slam dunk argument. It's been watching the quality of friendships and relationships that Christians had and saying, I don't know what that is, but there's something here that is connecting to the deepest parts of my soul that I was made for and nowhere else provides it. And that's increasingly the case as we look around our culture and our world. If people want to check out that book, can you give us a title again? Tell them where they can find it and think more deeply about friendship. Yeah, I'd love to. I have a copy here I can hold up. But before I do, I just want to emphasize what you just said, because it's about evangelism, engaging the culture again. 
I was a missionary in China. I knew a lot of converts from apologetics and stuff. It was that kind of mood. Praise God. I haven't known anybody in America who has come to Christ except by way of relationship, except by way of becoming friends with a Christian. Just in my life in the past 20 years, that is the way I see evangelism working. And it's one of the reasons I think writing a book on friendship called Made for People was a call because I think the way that we are going to disciple and evangelize modern America is to befriend them, is to show off friendship, the light of friendship in a dark, lonely culture. So I would love for people to check that out. It's made for people. And for any of my writings, Patrick, the two best ways to get involved or hear more about it is justinwhitmoreearly.com. And you can just Google Justin Whitwell earlier or Justin Early author and you'll find it. I got an email list that people can join where I send out emails about stuff like this and new writings. And then I'm most active on Instagram. So if anybody wants to go look me up on Instagram, I do like direct message with people there. Happy to communicate and try to answer questions. I have my natural discipleship rhythms where I'm not engaged with social media all the time, but I am attentive there and will answer questions. So join the mailing list or find me on Instagram and I'd love to engage with people. There's also a fantastic biography of you on Amazon, if anybody wants to pick that up. I believe it was written by Artificial Intelligence. So Yeah, uh, AI maybe... produced a totally incoherent, grammatically incorrect, but nonetheless honoring biography of me, because at least I can say there's a biography of me available on Amazon. It has one review, okay? It was one review, and it's a three-star review by my best friend, Steve, who said, started well, but kind of piddled out towards the end. And I'm not sure whether he's talking about the book or my life. But <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you Steve, should go check it out. <laughs> that's fantastic. I do hope people will check out your book, Made for People. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that loneliness is a topic that we are passionate about because the way it is affecting our culture. And if you remember the interview that we had with Jim Davis, who wrote The Great Dechurching and this massive phenomenon of people leaving the church, one of the things that he repeated over and over again is is that the answer is simple. It's friendship. That is the answer to de-churching. And so I think you have, in that book, provided a trellis, a great way for people to practically start thinking through how they can implement practices of friendship in their life. And so I would encourage you to check out Made for People. Justin, would you mind praying for people who are listening to the podcast? I would love to do that. Let's do it. Lord, we left up this conversation and everybody who is overhearing it or listening in. And I pray your blessing on them. I pray that they would be people who see clearly the normal of their life, whether in parenting or work and habits, but also see more clearly your grace that you, you desire to come into the mess of our habits and reshape us. You desire that we are not formed in the image of the world, but that we're transformed through the knowledge of you. So Lord, remind us that our habits don't change your love for us, but also convict us that your love for us should change our habits. And I pray, Lord, that you would set people listening to this conversation on a, a new walk of practices and spiritual disciplines so that they might find deeper life and love with you. And I pray especially that we would do it with friends and in friendship and thereby befriend the world. It's in your name of the friend Jesus, who is the friend of sinners, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter at truthovertribe underscore. 
We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter. 